don't judge your friendships by how many friends you've got, but by the quality. Does that friend ring you up? Do you ring them up? Do you actually know each other well enough to say, hey, I need some help today. I'm not feeling great. That is what a real friend is for, to be there for the fun times, but also the times when we're struggling, when things go wrong, and we need somebody who can actually support us in that moment. Welcome to Hearts and Minds, a podcast that will help you to discover the extraordinary in your ordinary life. Whether it's in your work, relationships, or your spiritual life, at Hearts and Minds podcast, we aim to help you to learn to love the life you have and discover greater love for yourself, others, and God. This is Maura Cassidy. Did you know that we all have a psychological immune system? Have you ever wondered how strong your psychological immune system is? Well, our guest in our podcast series today, Bridget Tussaud of Wilfred's House, is here to answer these questions and share with us the knowledge and tools to cultivate psychological immunity in our lives. Among other things, she will explore the pivotal role of friendship in building psychological immunity. She will explore the virtues often regarded as the superpower of human beings, kindness, honesty, hard work and forgiveness, and how these qualities are not just ethical benchmarks, but they're building blocks of psychological immunity. Finally, Bridget will explore practical tools and daily routines that empower you to maintain your psychological strength. Bridget founded Wilfred's House with a friend in 2016 and at Wilfred's House they offer low cost and free life coaching, therapy, counselling and bereavement support to anyone who is just struggling a bit with everyday life or is going through a more difficult challenge such as anxiety, depression, relationship problems, loss of family or difficulties. Whatever they are, Wilfred's House provide a wonderful support to many, many people. Well, first off, thank you, Bridget, for joining us. And we're delighted to have you on the podcast today. So to start with, Bridget, can you tell us a little bit about, well, what is psychological immunity to start with? So the word resilience is one that I've struggled with for a long time because it's something that people think is very old fashioned. And yes, it is an old fashioned word and an old fashioned concept. And it's often some, something young people will have said, oh, that's an old, that's an old word. You know, they're talking about the old days when everything was much very different. But actually, psychological immunity is resilience, and we all need immunity. And I think one of the things that we as a nation and a world have come to understand since 2020 is that our immunity is absolutely key to surviving. Mm. We all tipped into unexpectedly in March 2020, a world we didn't recognise, and every day we were being told about immunity something we'd always taken for granted in the generations we live in, because the 20th century was full of antibiotics, penicillin. We weren't subject to rampant disease where people, populations were decimated because they didn't have the immunity to deal with them. Mm. Infections came and they killed people off. And we haven't been used to that in the 20th century, in the 21st century. So what is resilience? It is our psychological immune system. But what really is it? What, do we, what does it mean in our lives? It's the ability actually to adapt and cope effectively in the face of stress, trauma and mental health adversity. Those are all big terms. So let me give you a couple of quotes from people who everybody will have heard of. So Nelson Mandela, an iconic figure from the 20th century. He said, do not judge me by my success. Judge me by how many times I fall over and get back up again. 
I think that's a wonderful way to think about it. It's literally putting it in the most simplistic terms. When we fall over, we can get up. And that is resilience in itself. Michelle Obama, some years later, said, resilience is not a single skill. It's a variety of skills and coping mechanisms. It's about adapting in the face of adversity and finding strength despite life's challenges. I like that too. She came from a different space and place, but again, she had challenges in her life that people wouldn't have even thought about. So what is it that is, what do we need in our life to be resilient? Well, funnily enough, we're actually born with the capacity to be resilient. And we don't remember this, but we do know that we see other people doing it. Little ones, when they start to walk, get up, they take two steps and they fall over, but they get up, up again. That is the very beginning of resilience. That is a child knowing innately that they can do it. And I think that if we think about some very simple baby steps, and I often use the word baby steps, we sort of get it. Mm. For me, resilience is about surviving things that I would probably in the past have felt were impossible to survive. But resilience isn't about uh, surviving trauma. It's about everyday stuff. When the bus is overloaded and they go past a stop three times, you're thinking, heck, I'm going to be late. Actually, we have to dig deep not to be angry. When the person knocks into us accidentally, we don't need to swear at them. We can just go, oh, and move on. So resilience is, as Nelson Mandela said, very small. As Michelle Obama said, it's very big. And in between is what we live our lives with, the capacity to cope with life. And that is the very essence of resilience the coping with our life circumstances. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, you know, Bridget, just to ask, you know, psychological immunity, as you say, resilience is what psycholo- like psychological immunity is. It, would you compare our psychological immunity with our biological immunity in the same way that we can, you know, learn how to be psychologically immune in the same way as we build up our physical immunity? We've had, have now what is almost biblical in its proportions, an epidemic of anxiety in the world. Every day there is an article in the paper or on a podcast about anxiety, about mental health. What we've done, I think, is separate out our head from the rest of our body. So we have whole body health, which starts at the top of our head and ends at the soles of our feet. And so physical immunity and psychological immunity need to sit together because they are housed in the same organ, in the same body. They're housed in one place. So to separate them out is to sort of say, my physical health is separate to my psychological health, but it's not. The two work hand in hand. So our physical resilience and our psychological resilience actually work as partners. They don't work as individual items. They work as two hands on a keyboard, working together to make us feel as well as we can. They don't always work. Sometimes we get let down. How often do you hear an older person saying, my legs are letting me down nowadays, but do you know what? I still have fun by thinking about things I love. So they're not working against each other. Both things haven't gone together. A child will learn to walk before it learns to understand how to bear its emotional um, constraints. So a child will scream when they don't get what they want because they haven't learned to regulate. So psychological and physically immune resilience work together, but not necessarily at the same times. But when we're functioning people, they will tend to complement. But when they don't complement, that's when we become unsteady. 
unsteady both physically on our feet and unsteady in our heads. Often you'll, I will often say to people, oh, I'm having a bit of wobble today. But actually, I've changed the word wobble to steady now because steady feels a little bit more ordinary, feels less fragile. So in answer to your question, Moira, they work in tandem. And that's the aim to get them to work in tandem. Mm-hmm. And would you also, you've mentioned there as well, Bridget, the epidemic or pandemic of anxiety in our world. And I sometimes get the sense talking to people that they're shocked that they struggle sometimes to cope or psychologically um, but I would think from what you're saying there, it's normal that we struggle, but precisely psychological immunity is learning how to face into those challenges and learn how to become more immune. Or is that putting it too simplistically? No, it's not. When COVID hit, we had no idea exactly what the impact would be. And I had a headmaster of a school I'm a governor of ring me up and said, B, are we going to have trauma after this? And I said, Ideally not, but probably yes, because if it goes on for more than a term, it becomes very embedded in a child's thought process. They have missed out on something. And nearly four years on from the beginning, we are seeing across school societies a massive impact. A child who, a little child who didn't go to school, even nursery school and wasn't socialised to begin with, has found it difficult when they've gone at the age of four or five into school. A child who was doing GCSEs will say they missed out. A child who didn't do exams for two years, public exams, will say they were a lost generation. And we have to remember that although it was a very short period of life, for some people it was a very key period of their lives. And it has changed the way we relate to each other. So we have had to become resilient to something we hadn't any knowledge of. And I think the thing for this was there was no lead up to it. In 2020, New Year's, Eve, New Year's Eve 2019, I remember being with friends thinking a new decade, you know, we've had a general election in the UK, we've got a massive Conservative government, whether you like it or not, we've got stability possibly politically for a while. How long we were? Three months later, 25th of March, we were all locked down. And to think that you could lock a world down literally in a week, that took a bit of getting used to. And it took away from us so much of what we expect. And when things are taken away from us, we then have to look at how we can manage to regain something. How can I be resilient to change? But when change comes overnight, as it did, we don't really have the tools to deal with. Everyone was struggling. Educators were struggling. Heads were struggling. Politicians, as we know, were struggling massively. Families were struggling. Parents suddenly were thrown together. Children had no framework. And so I think that period of our lives it's meant we've had to look at how we can cope and manage when things become difficult in a way we haven't had to do probably since in the UK, certainly since the end of the Second World War. You know, we've had a time when we haven't been asked to do a huge amount except get on with our lives. Yes, we've had strikes, but we haven't as a nation had to look at what is it we need to do to get up and walk again. Yeah, absolutely. You have to learn the skills, as you say, as you go. Um, can I can I take, a, I suppose, a slight sort of a um, diversion, but it's relevant um, to talk or to ask you rather, Bridget, about friendships, um, because you hear a lot of conversation about friendships, adult friendships, people struggling with friendships. Um, how can friendships help to build psychological immunity or can they? Well, Friendship at its best is glorious. At its worst, it's bloody. 
and most of us have, have, have inhabited space in between. Friendships are uh, underpin our lives on many levels. However, friendships today have become more complicated because of technology. And where in the past you would take your local community for granted, you'd have friendships within the family, the families were bigger, you'd have cousins you were friends with, you didn't move away so much from the where area you'd grown up in. Now people do, and people live through their uh, virtual friendships. And that has changed what friendship looks like for many people. I often hear young people say, I find it really difficult because I don't have so many friends on Instagram or TikTok, whatever you do. But then they're acquaintances. So is friendship important? Friendship is vital. The art of friendship is the basis of actually feeling safe because a friend will sustain you if they're a good friend. But what is friendship? It's built up on time. You take tentative steps into friendship. Some people are lucky enough to have large families where they have cousinly friendships, which they've known forever. They tend to be very, very secure friendships. Yes, families argue, but they're ones based on commonality, on history. Friendships based on ones you make yourself have huge power, but they take nurturing. So I've made friendships in my life all over the place. However, when I was a young child at school, I found it difficult to make friendships. And I now realise it was difficult because I was slightly different. And I was only thinking the other day about this podcast and what I could say and I dug back deep into my memory. And I was the adopted child of loving, wonderful parents. However, I always knew I was adopted. This was 19, late 50s I was adopted. And no one talked about it. My mother said, don't tell anybody you're adopted because that's our secret. However, when I was at school, I now realised that a lot of the children at school knew I was adopted because their parents must have told them. And while I wasn't different... I felt different. I didn't look particularly different because I just didn't have hair my mother's colour, but we had the same skin colour. But looking back, I now see that there was something about me not quite belonging. And it wasn't my imagination. It was something I felt. And now I see that actually it was something that was real. In adult life, I formed friendships based on me being me. And they, I cherish them. They're not always easy. There's a word, friends for reasons, friends for seasons. And friends for seasons are the ones that sometimes leave our friendship group. And I often say to people, you sometimes have to audit your friends. So is friendship important? Yes, it is. But it's important to have the right friends. And you don't need too many of them. One is, one is wonderful. Two is fantastic. Three is glorious. Four is exceptional. Five is brilliant. Anything more than five really close friends, you're sort of getting into a place of knowing so many people. Some of us have the capacity to have select groups of friends. Other people have an innate capacity to be very open. But one of the things I will always say, don't judge your friendships by how many friends you've got, but by the quality. Does that friend ring you up? Do you ring them up? Do you actually know each other well enough to say, hey, I need some help today. I'm not feeling great. That is what friendship, that is what a real friend is for, to be there for the fun times, but also the times when we're struggling, when things go wrong, and we need somebody who can actually support us in that moment. I suppose as well, another aspect you often hear people talk about in relation to psychological immunity is, is, is values or strengths, um, virtues even. You know, we call them the superpowers of human beings. Um, 
If you're someone who's trying, you know, to be more virtuous, you know, more attractive, kinder, honest, forgiving human being, does that help to build your psychological immunity because you're sort of working on yourself? I think the thing about resilience is it's something that covers all aspects of our lives. And so it covers anything from our academic uh, ability. Do I have resilience to say, I don't understand this maths equation? Or to say, I know that have a harder try, I'm never going to get more than so whatever grade I'm going to get. So resilience is something that covers all parts of our life. It covers our ability to forgive somebody. To forgive, we have to be able to be comfortable with letting go. So to be, to be honest, we have to be comfortable with actually being brutally honest with ourselves because the honesty starts within. Are we honest about who we are? I know that I can have horrible feelings about somebody and I catch myself thinking, hang on, hang on, that isn't kind. But I'm being honest with myself about that's not kind. My team have a little, I have a support team and people like me always have support teams. So behind me are wonderful women who help me with the life I live. And on my diary, there's an H regularly, and H is the hairdressers. Everybody laughs about being her H. However, I'm honest enough with myself to know that I like my hair to be neat and tidy. I went to a lecture with a wonderful, wonderfully eminent woman, and I kept looking at her thinking, I do wish you'd wash your hair. And I caught myself thinking, that is such an unkind thing to think. Because perhaps she's been very busy and couldn't wash it. Perhaps she has hair that naturally gets quite greasy. And I caught myself thinking, that was a horrible thing for me to think. So honesty with yourself is the key to actually being kind to others. And we all have horrible feelings and we have to capture that and know that it's all right as long as you can move away from that. So we need to be resilient to our own shame. And how often do you feel shamed by something? I often do. We're all judgmental. Yesterday, coming back on the train to my house in the country, uh, country somebody sat next to me and I don't know what they'd eaten. But the smell of garlic was like you've no idea. <laughs> and I thought, hang on, this is something that I need to get over. So what I did was the next stop, I just got off out of the seat and I moved down the carriage to another seat. I didn't do it in the middle of the journey because I thought that would be rude, that would be obvious. But I, in my young self would have probably gone, sniffed a bit loudly, but I, I try not to. Mm. I, try to be, I try to be kind to myself and look at my failings. And those are, that's the best way of being honest with the world. Mm-hmm. Oh, very true. And it, it's, it's, you know, you've often heard the phrase that we, we can't change others and it's not fair or right to want, you know, to do that. Whereas we can obviously change ourselves, as, as you explained so well there, um, Bridget. Um, very helpful, that actually. Very, very helpful. Um, can I move on to, I suppose, another aspect of resilience? We've talked obviously already about psychological immunity, resilience, virtue, friendship. Um, what about the unexpected challenges and problems in life? How can one stay, you know, psychologically strong when things, you know, a little bit like you mentioned earlier, when the COVID situations crop up, whether it's in relationships or work or, or otherwise that we just have no experience of and are very thrown by? Well, When we have things in our lives that go catastrophically wrong, it is the time in our lives when our resilience will possibly kick in in the most unusual ways. And this is a true story. It happened in July of this year. I I do a lot of family work. 
and families come into my life. I help them. They disappear off like ships in the night. And every so often I would hear from them again. Normally it's at Christmas um, to tell me that they've had a lovely time or to tell me something good's happened in their lives. Or they come back to see me when something bad's happened. However, on this occasion, it was Sunday morning and my phone rang twice. And I have a little rule. I don't pick my work phone up on a Sunday unless Sunday rings me twice. I've always said to my patients, if you have a crisis and you want to speak to me, ring me twice. And if I see the two missed calls, I will ring you back. Okay. On this Sunday morning, I had four missed calls from this number from a woman who's very bounded. I immediately rang her back and she just said to me, B, I need your help. My 12-year-old son was killed in a car crash with his father last night. He died on impact. Her son in the back was very, very seriously injured and is now quite crippled. Her ex-husband survived and their other child who's deeply autistic was not in the car. She's the only child who's not damaged in the family in any physical way. This woman, I'm going to call her Maria, her name is not Maria. Maria said, B, I don't know what to do, but she said, I need you to come and talk with me tomorrow. And I said, of course I'll come. And when I went to see her and we, we just, I just hugged her, she said, I looked into myself last night and you'd used the word resilience once with me when I was going through my divorce. And she said, that's the only one going to get through this, isn't it, by being resilient. I have nothing else other than the capacity to be strong in the face of the most challenging adversity ever. And two weeks later, this very lovely lady walked down the aisle at the Bronson Oratory in London with her son's coffin and gave a eulogy about her son to about 500 people. Uh, and she was magnificent. She's today struggling like mad, peddling like mad. But she says every week, I have the capacity to deal with this. I know I can cope. And that is resilience to its very, very most extreme demands. But she said, I had two options. I could either go completely under or I could swim like mad. And she's swimming like mad. And she always uses the word, I can be resilient to this desperate pain. And that is an extreme example. Less extreme examples are ones when we do badly in exams, when we, everything feels horrific. We failed to get into university. It's life-changing, we think. It's life-altering in some ways, but it's not life-changing. But you're resilient then to the pain you feel, the shame of not doing as well as you thought you were going to do. Or it can be you cook a terrible meal and you take it out of the oven. I had one friend, she was cooking beef wellington. What she didn't realise was when she cooked beef wellington, you cooked the beef before you put it in the pastry. So she took the pastry out, the oven, out of the oven, served it at the table, a bit of raw meat inside. She felt shamed. She said, I burst into tears and went out of my bedroom. So resilience is huge. It could death, loss of, loss of hope, loss of, loss of a future. About exams, about something about cooking, it helps us in every way. And the example I give you, Maria, is I felt humbled in that moment that this woman actually could use something that she'd worked with years ago to help her through this most desperate, catastrophic event in her life. Extraordinary, really, when you think about it. The human capacity is incredible. Um, Bridget, moving on a little bit from that, I suppose, um, you know, those extraordinary traumas, effectively, that ha happen in some people's lives. And um, at the same time, I think it's lovely how you say, well, it's sometimes it, what we're going through may seem to pale in significance in comparison to what some people are struggling with. 
it's all resilience across the table. Um, are there tools, you know, that we can build into our daily routines to help us to stay psychologically strong, whether we're coping with something smaller or something more catastrophic? Yes, there are. But we'll, and what we must also remember is that we all have different capacities. And if we look at each of our bodies, we're all built totally differently. I'm average height, I'm five foot five, I'm fairly slimish, I don't have to work too hard at being fit. I'm lucky. I, you know, I can still, at my age, I can still run, I can still do Pilates, etc. Some people can't do that. Their bodies are built differently. And what we must remember is that we all have different capacities to be resilient. So some people will be born and with a capacity to actually survive things more easily because it's the way their brain works. Now, what we don't know is what actually is happening in our brain to be resilient. But we, what we do know is the brain is a muscle. It weighs between three and five pounds. And it operates in a unique way to everybody. But one of the things we can do to help ourselves and gain the maximum capacity. So, as I said, I'm fairly fit. However, I know I can't run a marathon because I just couldn't do that. My body won't allow me to. I've tried. But I can run half a marathon. So I know I can go to so far. I push myself. So to be resilient, we need to know what we're capable of. Now, we can build tools by putting in place frameworks. So... If we're looking at our physical well-being, we tend to eat as well as we can if we're training. So we put into our body things that work for us. We don't over overload ourselves with sugar, for instance. Now, our brain functions by what we put into our body. So the starting point of being resilient is this. Put in a framework for yourself. Be organized in your life. So get up in the morning. We go through a routine. But have a routine. For people who are going to work, I often say, make sure you've got your clothes hanging up the night before. Have out what you need to wear, everything ironed, or whatever you, not everybody irons these days, but I like it. I like to have ironed things, old fashioned. So have your clothes ready for yourself. So that means you've got one less thing to worry about. Being resilient is about actually being organized as well. So whatever your DNA is and whatever capacity we have to bear things, if you're organized, you take away some of the worries. So have a framework to your life. Make sure that you feel that you can be steady in the mornings. Eat something. Don't overload your body with foods that are toxic. If you have a car and you put the wrong fuel in the car, the car won't work. Okay? The engine, which is the brain of the car, doesn't work. With our bodies, if we put the wrong fuel in, our brains won't work correctly. We all know if we drink too much coffee, we can go and spin into a place of feeling hyper. You have too many Coca-Colas, you bounce off the ceilings. You eat too much chocolate, you can have sugar overload. So it's about actually finding what works for us. Hmm. And it's trial and error, often. If you have a good day and you feel good, write down what you did that day, because it might be an indicator of, of actually what works for you. Remember, how you experience life will be different how the next person experiences life. And it's you're to be different to your mother or your sister, or your brother or your, hmm. or your father. We are all different. It's always individual. Don't set your benchmark by other people. Set your benchmark by how you feel. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I suppose you're saying there is, is it's like routines, organization, um, what you put into your body, uh, you know, f- your food. Um, are there any other tools we should be aware of to help with our resilience? Well, I think when we want to feel resilient, we, we must know what, what resilience is. And as I said earlier, it's about the capacity to get up again and carry on. It's about the capacity to cope in the face of adversity. So what is it we're coping with? We're coping with the feelings that come into our, into our heads. And so 
we need to be safe enough so that we can pay attention to what we need. So it's very complex, Moira, because resilience is innate, but it's also learned, and it's learned from the beginning of life. And it's learned through family, it's learned through how our mothers and carers work with us, it's learned from schools. So one of the things we're piloting is how we can put in place in the education system resilience packages. So you get, uh, learn resilience from an early age, resilience to difficulties with friendships, resilience to difficulties with, with, um, with academic work, with familial relationships. So if you are an adult struggling with feeling I'm not very resilient, start simply Start looking at what it makes you feel good. Let's put that down. Look at what your day looks like. Because if you can make your day feel safe with a framework, you sort of have an, op an opportunity to cope with things in a slightly different way. It is slow. What I'm going to do going forward is I'm going to do a couple of podcasts about what actually we can do in very practical ways to give ourselves the resilience at certain ages. Because it's quite age-related as well. Because what, what will keep a teenager feeling resilient is very different what will keep a, a stressed mum of three kids who's working her socks off, who thinks, gosh, I wish I had 48 hours in a day. And to an older person who has too much time to think almost. So different times of our life need different strategies. But ideally, it is learned from the beginning of life. Super. Well, that's very helpful. And I'm looking forward to listening to those podcasts, Bridget. Um, delighted to to promote them on Hearts and Minds. Um when should you seek professional help? Because that's often something people struggle with. You know, sometimes they leave it to, too late or things get embedded. When is a good moment to, to look for that help? And why? Sh and how do we normalize that? Because still, I think some people feel that's something people only do if they're not able. You know, there's something wrong with them. So like in anything, we sort of go from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, when I was growing up in the 1960s and 70s, people didn't talk about anything. We got on with life. And if you didn't feel great, it was just how life was. Everything, and I remember my mother was probably had quite a lot of what I would call psychological issues, but she never talked about them. She was an academic woman who didn't work because women didn't work in those days. They didn't have to. And so I was brought up not talking about things. I then moved into society in a generation where we did start to talk. But now we have a generation where... We can talk about anything we want to. And with that has come the, 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 the uh, thought that everything is a problem. Now, we have a, a statistic now, which one in four people suffer from mental health issues. That actually is an incorrect statistic. One in four people would say that they're not feeling fantastic. Great. Mm. Are they suffering from mental health issues? No, they're not. What they're probably doing is feeling that life needs a little bit more support. So we will always say, don't let it become something that feels difficult. People have a stigma around asking for help because they think it's a mental health issue. And the one in four statistic comes from people saying they don't feel great. What most people need is a wingman. They need somebody to talk to. So I've always said, if things feel a bit troubled, talk to a friend, talk to an older person in your life. Don't let it become something that you sit on. So we all have a uh, worry, it's normal. We all have stress. That's fairly normal. We all have our feelings of anxiety, but we don't all have an anxiety disorder. But now, if you're if you don't if you're not feeling good, you have anxiety. We are whereas we have become a society where things become quite catastrophic quite quickly. Part of it's down to Dr. Google because you look something up on Dr. Google and instantly you've got all sorts of diagnosis. So my suggestion is 
if you're at university and in your first term you're feeling pretty wobbly about your about being there, go and talk to a tutor. Go and say, I think I might need to talk to somebody. I'm not feeling great. Or you may talk to a friend, but don't leave it. And what we've done in my charity is we I'm a psychotherapist, have been for a lifetime. We introduce psychotherapy to universities. But what we've now brought in is life coaching service as well, because that's much lighter touch. Still dealing with problems, but looking at it from a very practical point of view. Because so often we feel wobbly and unsteady because of what we're going through at that moment, not because we've got deep-seated mental health issues. Remember, if you're beginning to feel a bit wobbly, do not think it's because you're tipping into a mental health disorder. You may have something that needs very serious tension, but the majority of people don't. In my, in my experience, working in myriads of schools and universities, probably out of 30 kids, you'll have two and a half who would probably have something that needs really, really serious tension. The rest will be the other people who are not feeling fantastic, but the people who are just not coping with that bit of their lives. If you're a mum, how many mums feel overwhelmed? The majority of them. If you're a dad, if you're single, in every part of every bit of our lives will produce worry. Talk to somebody. Never be afraid to say, I just want to talk. Because but that way you often stave off the need to see somebody with a with a bigger problem later. Because we can help, people like me will help you understand that yes it's difficult but you can cope let's look at what you need to cope with that bit we are upskilling you with resilience up for that bit of your life resilient resilience from where i sit is about upskilling somebody to deal with so you're running into debt okay you spent your student loan in the first two weeks of term oh my god okay don't leave it to the end of term so you've gone out and gone to a money lender actually say i've mucked up here i need help never be afraid to ask because then you'll be upskilled to deal with something. Look at it in simple terms. Don't be fearful. Just ask the question. Help. Hmm. Fantastic. And I love the way you've just called it upskilling. You know, we, we, we're so accepting of upskilling in our professional lives, but we don't necessarily think we need it in other areas like, as you say, psychologically. Um, Bridget, your life's work is dedicated to providing counselling and emotional support to those who need it. Um, what inspired you to set up Wilfred's House in the first place? So most of our lives are a happy chance. Very few people have a roadmap that they actually uh, live by. Mine certainly wasn't that. I have lived on a road full of, a map full of A roads, B roads, minor roads, unmade roads and dead ends, literally. And so Wilfred's House came out of nowhere, but actually came out of a long, long, long life of working. So I have been a therapist for many years. I worked for Cruise Bereavement after I was bereaved by suicide in my 30s, over 30 years ago now. And I got the most amazing support from a woman who, called Shirley, who put my life into a place it needed to be. She gave me the capacity to live life again. I thought I wouldn't be able to. I had a young child at the time and I thought my life was pretty much not over. I wasn't suicidal, but I couldn't see a way forward. I went to work for Cruise Bereavement after I had gained the capacity to feel again, other feel anything other than pain. Went to work for Cruise Bereavement underneath the arches in the Port of Bella Road, met a fantastic group of women who are still friends of mine today. And we and I worked for them. I've trained as a therapist. I luckily I met my present husband who I'm happily married to for many years. I became a therapist and I continued my geology uh, work. One day I was asked 15 phone calls, um, Bridget, could you, could I come and see you? And 
they couldn't afford to see me. And I had no more free slots. Therapists like me always have four or five slots a week, but I didn't have 15 free slots. And I thought, hmm, what do we do? Talk to a friend over cups of tea, and we set up um, a charity called Wilford's House. And Wilford's House came out of the need of people to talk about things that go on in their lives, but they didn't know who to talk to, but they were given the name of somebody who had a reputation for always being helpful. Always being helpful isn't always that good because you overwhelm yourself. So I gathered around me a group of young people, women in their 30s who were training. I became, I had to take on uh, supervisory training and I had, and so that was a lucky thing. We became a training organisation for all the leader, train, leader training institutions and we're now a training placement. And so we have wonderfully talented therapists who have lo lots of experience but are going on to get further accreditation and we give them placements, they give me hours. And we now see thousands of people a year. And I have a management team. And from that led into doing talks, into working with universities, and into I'm setting up a foundation now called Mental Health and Resilience with somebody I met whose daughter had committed suicide. And we are looking at how people can be resilient to their lives so they don't end up committing suicide, the very worst case scenario. So Wilfred's House came out of nowhere, but it's actually eight, seven years later become something that just is part of my everyday. Wow. Thank you for sharing that with us, Bridget. And and I just love to see how, you know, in your own story, you know, dealing yourself with a very tra tragic situation, you have turned that around and learned to share and to do so much good for so many others. So um, it's, a, it's a beautiful story of resilience in itself. Um, Bridget, before we finish, because we're sort of running out of time now, is there anything that you would like to add before we finish this podcast? Anything unsaid that you would like to say? Well... I've just written a 100-page paper, so there's a lot I could say, but um, with help, obviously. But I think that what we can say here is it's an open-ended subject. And if you, anybody's listening to this, if you feel that you want some support, contact Wilford's House or contact somebody. There is a lot of inexpensive and free support out there. Don't be afraid to ask. Ask before it becomes something that dominates your life. I would say that life is complex, to be resilient to change is always difficult. We are living in complicated times at the moment. We turn the news on. And just as a finality here, uh, my daughter was in the car with her eight, my eight-year-old grandson the other day. And he's a normal eight-year-old. And he said, Mummy, please can you turn the radio off? I can't hear about any more deaths. It was the news. And so that I think what we need to be aware of is that everybody's saturated at the moment. And this was obviously over the Israel situation. But I think we need to be careful at the moment that we are dealing with a lot of external news that triggers things for us. And it's very, mm. very hard to hear. And that's an eight-year-old who didn't really know what she was saying except, I don't want to hear another about another death. And I think we need to remember that at the moment we are living mm. in hard times. So get help. Make, make sure that you talk with somebody if you at any time don't feel that life is quite steady. Mm. Super. That's very helpful, Bridget. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, that's been a thoroughly fascinating podcast. Um, and I'm sure many of our listeners are going to really enjoy this. Um, just to say to our listeners, thank you for joining us again in our podcast series. And if there is anything that you would like to us to discuss or to, to, to bring up, um, please let us know, as you always do. And we will obviously leave resources at the end of this podcast, notably um, the website for Wilfred's House and any other resources that Bridget might like to share with us. And we'll keep you updated on her podcast, her upcoming podcast. Thank you again, Bridget, and take care. Bye.